Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. Positions. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Earworm Network. I am Yaga Malark. Today's episode is on defensive positions. Well, defensive and strong positions, but that really was a, a much longer title, so we just went with defensive positions. But before we get into that, I'm sure you've noticed, according to the schedule, that this will be our last episode of the year. So, when next we talk, it'll be 2023. Thank God. Am I right? I, I don't know about the rest of you. Maybe some of you had a banner year, but I'm fairly certain that the majority of us are breathing a sigh of relief that it is over and perhaps looking forward to better things in the new year. You know, more involvement and better harmony with our communities, world getting their heads out of their butts, you know, all these all these various things. But I'm, I'm right there hoping along with you, and I don't know what holiday you may or may not celebrate this time of year and so whether it's Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or the solstice or Christmas or you know whatever or, or even nothing even if you just like to get together and have a couple of beers with the friends I'd like to say happy holidays or lack of holidays just happy I want you to be happy <laughs> I just thought it was fitting that this was going to be dropping on Christmas so that was that was kind of amusing to me but so I was looking over kind of the stats, because I was I, I was sitting there being like, we have been on Clausewitz for a long time. And I looked back, and this is going to be our 30th episode on Clausewitz, or, or on war, um, you know, by, by Clausewitz. Which means that this one book has taken up over a third of the show. For over a third of the show, for as long as we've been on air. We've been talking about Clausewitz's On War. And if y'all are reading along with home at home, you'll know that we just bypassed the halfway mark. I mean, this book is thick, but, you know, it is it is a, a military theorist's wet dream in a lot of ways because there's so much to unpack there. He is so detailed with everything, and you've noticed, you've noticed. We've, we've done a ton of episodes on, on very detailed things, and we have him to thank for that, and it's just such a, a rich tapestry that he weaves, a very detailed tapestry that is, is difficult to skip over things. So, I mean, I'm enjoying it. I hope you guys are, too. Um, I'm not sure what I'm going to do when we get done with Clausewitz. I'm going to have to figure out how to talk about some other theorist, but that, that'll be a while from now. I just thought that those were some, some cool stats as we're approaching the 100 episode mark. Uh, those of you, real quick, who are patrons will probably have noticed that your mailboxes have been somewhat empty of your promised stickers. We have been having issues with the printers, and we are finally getting our order shipped at this point. And so we are trying to make it up to you. So don't just expect the one or two stickers that you are owed. We are going to be sending you a plethora. 
to say thank you for your patience, to say thank you for sticking with us and for your support. Again, I'm going down to Battle for the Ring this next month to interview some folks, and that is done entirely based on funds that you guys have contributed, on, on the generous donations of, of some of your fellow listeners and, and some of you who are listening. So thank you so much. Um, you know, during this, this time of giving, I think I should say thank you from the bottom of my heart from, for everything that you have done and for everything you continue to do. Uh, the show could not survive without you. We could not do what we are doing in terms of like the interviews and the traveling and, and building things up and, and everything along those lines without the support of people like you. So again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. But, um, yeah, I think that's all the jaw jacking that I have for today. Short little intro section for you. Uh, without further ado, oh, you may have noticed at the moment, I did want to touch on this, you may have noticed that the audio quality is going to be a little different during this intro portion as it is to the normal portion where you'll hear the audio quality that you are accustomed to. That is because I am currently speaking into my uh, field interview microphone, and that is because this is Montana, and we are currently in the negative double digits, and my office is a, a little bit of a walk from the house, but that walk is icy and treacherous. So yours truly is making the tactical decision to uh, do my report from the inside. But uh, again, appreciate you putting up with the, the audio quality for this first part. I guarantee it's going to get a little better here. And um, yeah, without further ado, let's talk about defensive positions. And then while we're at it, strong positions as well. two items that we will be discussing today are defensive positions and strong positions. The difference between these, and we're going to discuss defensive first and then move on to the strong, but the difference being that a defensive position is one in which we want battle, and a strong position is one in which we are attempting to deter battle. So along these lines, let's talk about defensive positions. So a defensive position can be immediately classified by something or a situation where we accept battle while making use of ground for protection. That's a defensive position, when we're accepting the battle and making use of the ground for our own protection. And this place, this idea of place, predominates the idea of a defensive position because we are then rooting ourselves or arranging for the battle on a spot rather than going for the battle through a spot. So, you know, and again, this can be hard to distinguish sometimes in the, in the melee, different areas are doing offensive maneuvers and different areas are moving in defensive ways. But in those areas where we are defending, that's a defensive position. And when we do take a defensive position, in doing so, we sacrifice our mobility in a lot of ways. We have said that this is the spot in which we want this to occur either because we're using it as a feint or an actual ground for it, whatever, whatever we're actually looking for there, we are attempting to provoke our enemy into attacking us and hopefully attacking us while we are at a strategic advantage. But we always have to remember that the offensive power is offered a choice in this. When they see us shoring up into a defensive position, they're offered the choice of either trying to turn the position, because a frontal attack is kind of silly, but to turn it, which is to say to get one of the flanks to fold up and make the entire defensive position fall apart, or by just passing it by, 
There's no rule that says just because your enemy stands their ground and looks at you that you automatically have to fight them. No, if, if our objective is more easily attained without fighting, well, let them stay out of position. and <laughs> Let's accomplish what we need to accomplish. So we have to remember that, that the offense is given that choice. But in order to make the offense choose what we want, which is to attack us in a way that is disadvantageous to them, we have to make sure that there is some enticing element to what we're offering. And this is the difference between a defensive position and a strong position, like we'll discuss a little bit later. But the strategic properties of a defensive position, we've got four of these to look at. The first one is that it cannot be passed around, right? So that, that eliminates that choice that the offense has of moving around it. And we can do this by occupying a mountain pass, a important ford or bridge, or other places where there is a funnel, where people have to go in order to get from one place to another. So making a defensive position here absolutely provokes a fight in a lot of ways because your opponent can't really get anywhere without fighting you. So that's a good, a good, a good property of the defensive position is that it cannot be passed around. Our second property is that it gives the defender an advantage for lines of communication. Because this is always important when we're dealing with lines of communication or our line of retreat. We want to make sure as the defender that those advantages are in our favor. I mean, there's a lot of advantages that we're look, obviously looking for as, as a defender. That's not the only one. But it's very important. Because then we have the lines of communication to talk with other people. The forces with, you know, HQ, wherever that is. We're able to scoot if we need to without trying to you know, break out of any given area because again, they're not passing around us. We have that one front, ideally. Our third strategic property is that defense in general has a favorable influence on combat. In previous sections, we have discussed that defense, just statistically speaking, is the superior form of combat to the offense, that the offense is in a position where it needs to overperform or outperform or have some sort of massive advantage in technology or, or numeric superiority in order to guarantee any sort of victory. A defensive position, at least the property of taking a, position, a defensive position, lends to us that same property of the defense itself, which is to say the superiority of its form over what our opponent is doing and the need then of our opponent to bring some sort of extraordinary measure to have a, a true advantage against us. So this is an outstanding thing about the defensive as well, and, and a reason why a lot of people try to wait for their opponent to come to them. They are counter fighters or defensive fighters, because being defensive, again, you're, you're the one responding. You're the one receiving. You know, if, I'm, if I can catch my opponent while they're trying to sh throw a shot, they're going to be way more exposed with their arm out trying to hit me than they will be if they're hunkered down behind their shield. See, there's, there's a clear advantage that, that the defense has. Now, if our opponent is much faster than us, if they're able to get around our defenses, if they're able to overwhelm us with skill or technology or whatever, then this, is, like I said, that favorable influence is overcome in that moment. But that doesn't change the fact that that original advantage, the favorable influence on combat, is, is also incurred because of these defensive positions. In this same idea, we get to choose where we're going. We're, we're talking about the place, right? This, this place that predominates anything that we can talk about when we're talking about 
a defensive position. And the general influence of the terrain needs to be advantageous for a number of reasons. When we're talking about Clausewitz's time and the dominance that artillery had over the battlefield, to make sure that the terrain is advantageous, we want to make sure that we have some way to overlook our adversary, whether that mean high walls or towers or parapets or mountains or cliffs or hills, whatever the case may be, being able to overlook our adversary is important for artillery. It is also important just for observation. You know, if we're able to kind of see from a higher perspective what our opponent is doing, what they're planning, where they're moving, well, we can better do our defense from there. And so it gives us intel on the ground, immediate intel that we don't have to rely on, you know, reports from other scouts for we've got it right there. Over able to overlook our adversary. And secondly, we need terrain that works to the advantage of whatever the abilities are of our army. If we're dealing with a more cavalry-oriented force or a more flanker-oriented force, let's say we've got some, some young folks out there that still have a lot of vigor in their bones or other people who are sprinters or runners and have no problem moving like that. Well, to hunker those folks down into a line battle or into a bridge battle or something along those lines wastes their talents because they are far more uh, benefited by open country, for instance. And this is not to say that we're choosing to make our defensive position in open country, because obviously that goes against this, you know, the first strategic property that we're looking for in this defensive position, in that it cannot be passed around, right? So, but we, you know, we could be occupying a pass that has a plane, like a, a, an open plane in front of it. So we're able to use our cav or our fast movers in this way. On the flip side, if we have a infantry-based army, you know, slower folks who may be uh, more armed, then we want to make sure that we're making full use of that. Whether it is narrowing the front so we can use the full force of our numbers to bear upon our enemy, or making sure that we have hidey holes, basically, for everything. We know that from you know previous study of, of Clausewitz and others, that infantry work best when they are in kind of scattered and obscured areas. So if we're dealing with like forests or marshlands or hilly country or anything else that kind of obscures where we're at and allows our forces to kind of move where they need to be unobserved, that is the strength of infantry. And so we want all of these things in mind so that we can have a good defensive position. We got to make sure that it cannot be passed around because there's no point in defense if there's no battle. In fact, it can just put us on a, in a worse position if, say, we're trying to defend something behind us, we put in a defensive position, our opponent bypasses us, and now they are closer to our objective than we are. That puts us at the disadvantage because now we're pushing on through the spot, right? So making sure that our defensive position is something that cannot be passed around is a, a number one for a reason. It's a paramount importance. The second one is that we make sure that it gives our that gives us, the defender, advantage for lines of communication and lines of retreat. There's no use having a good position if it's also a death trap. You know, we have to be able to move from something because there's no, there's no guarantees in war. There's no guarantees in battle. Nothing is truly unassailable. No opponent is truly invincible. Anything dies and anything can be cracked. That's just the way things are. Build a, wall, a 10 foot wall and I'll build you a 15 foot ladder of siege works. But making sure that we have those lines of communication and retreat so that if things go south, we can get out of there 
that is also something that we can choose as the defender and make sure that we've got squared away. Thirdly, we are already making or taking advantage of the principle of defense, which is that is superior to the offense, again, just statistically. It doesn't, again, help us achieve our positive goal necessarily, but it is the stronger form of combat. And that is utilized here just by nature of it being a defensive position. And then lastly, we have this general influence of the terrain and making sure that it is advantageous for our observation, our long range fire, and for whatever close range combinations we have between foot troops and fast moving troops. So this is what we're talking about when we say a defensive position. And a defensive position doesn't need to be unassailable. In fact, it shouldn't be unassailable. Because if our opponent comes in and they look at it and they say, there's no way that I can take on that. They've got everything shored up. There's defensive works everywhere. Cannons are pointed down at me. If I go in there, it is just a killing field. A smart opponent is not going to approach that position, thus defeating the point of trying to fight a defensive battle, trying to lure our opponent in to a disadvantageous per, uh, position for them. So a defensive position opposed to a strong position, which is what we're going to get into next, is that a def defensive position gives the opponent at least the opportunity to attack, at least some advantage, at least something that makes them think, okay, I can do this. I can come in and achieve some sort of victory. Because otherwise, they just leave. And the fight doesn't happen, and our objective is in question at that point. So let's move on now to a strong position and entrenched camps. That's kind of the chapter we were looking at for this one, is strong positions and entrenched camps. And this is different, as we said before, than the defensive position because we aim it to be unassailable. Defensive position, we don't want to be unassailable. We want to lure our opponent into combat. In a strong position, we want to say, No, you shall not pass. Well, how do we do that? How do we, what's the difference then between a defensive position and a strong position? How do we really shore it up? Well, man, this was one of those sections where it got technical. Where he had like subsections of subsections with, with more subsections underneath it. This was a, a highly technical <laughs> section of the book. But yeah, he's got some great ideas here. And while a lot of this doesn't necessarily apply to wargaming specifically, because again, none of us are really in a position to do this. Unless you're playing some sort of narrative thing with like 40k where you set it up and one person has the you know, defensive side of the board and they can arrange everything the way that they want to and the other person's coming from the offensive side and has to play on the board that the defender has assembled, you know, outside of something like that, we're not going to really see the possibilities of strong positions within physical or intellectual wargaming. In, in rare occurrences or perhaps with uh, uniquely talented individuals, we might be able to see it. But it's not going to be nearly as common as we would want to be in, a, in an actual wartime setting. But I also thought that it would be a really interesting study, especially for people who like do online gaming, something like, you know, civilization. Trying to make a strong position is really important. So, you know, let's look at this. Let's look at this in detail. I really enjoyed this section. Uh, yeah, let's get into it. So, as we said, that it depends, it, it designed to be unassailable. And that there's three ways where it tries to do this. First off, there is a, a bit of artistry involved because there's field craft that we have to use to kind of assist nature 
That's a very important thing for having a strong position is that nature is there to help. We've talked about a pass before or a ford or bridge at a river, some place where there is something already that narrows our field, that narrows our fronts into something that is far more manageable and presents a clear obstacle and a clear objective for both ourselves and for our opponent. Secondly, we need it to be able to provide cover for troop movement in some way, whether it's like tunnels or trenches or a thick forest or something along those lines, a strong position, we need to be able to reposition folks where they need to be without our opponent being able to, one, overly observe us doing it, and two, attack us in the process. That's like half the point of having a trench is just so you can move around and not get shot while doing so. It's very important. Now, we also have to remember that when we're dealing with this, this kind of cover, this, these tunnels or trenches, the longer these lines are, the harder they are to turn. You know, we have, we have a lot more area to go. If it's a short line that kind of ends in the middle of nowhere, well, that's easy to turn. But we have our line strung out a little bit more. Well, then we've got more area that we can cover. And another huge thing about this, and we're going to get to it in a, in a few minutes, is that uh, we need to be able to defend in any direction. We, we need to not really have a flank when we're dealing with a strong uh, position. And for this to happen, again, we need good flank supports. We need something like a cliff or a river or an ocean or an impassable marsh or something along those lines or the edge of the world. <laughs> Most of us who are dealing with intellectual or physical wargaming, there's going to be an actual edge of the world. And that is a fantastic place to, to kind of stake out a strong position because you have an area where nobody can go. That's a flank where nobody can get through and get around it. They have to punch through the actual people who are there. And that's, also, that's the third point we've kind of moved into it, which is that we need to be able to extend that front in any direction to prevent flanking in any place. And I cannot stress enough that this, that this position needs to be in a way that it cannot be turned. In such a way that, again, there's, there's no real way to get a wraparound on it. There's no real way to really get in in that way where it needs to be assaulted in kind of a frontal attack mode. But the other main point that we need to make here is that it cannot be passed by. Remember, uh, when we were talking about defensive positions, the same uh, question posed to the attacker is also here, whether to, a, a, you know, try to attack and overcome or whether just pass by. And so we need to make sure that we cannot be easily passed by without some sort of, you know, deterrent. So when we're talking about strong positions and entrenched camps, we're going to go over three different topics, kind of, when we're dealing with this subject. We're going to be talking about lines, the lines themselves that we were talking about, these uh, areas that we can do for troop movements and for tunnels, the way that we get around and also prevent our opponent from breaking in on us. We're going to talk about position, much like we did with uh, defense, and kind of talk about the differences between how we would set it up for a defense and how we would set it up for a strong position. And then we're also going to talk a little bit about an entrenched camp, what that is and kind of the function that they have within warfare, particularly at this time in history. So lines is the first uh, subject that we're going to cover. And lines themselves are worthless as just a thing. Having a trench is not useful unless it has people in it to defend it. Having bunkers doesn't really matter unless there are people in those bunkers ready to use them against the enemy. 
So they, it presents no obstacle at all. If we've got trenches, they're easy to cross if there's nobody in them to defend them. You either jump down and jump back up, you put a board across the top, I mean, you know, whatever. It's, it's a small obstacle that really isn't that much. The real obstacle when we're dealing with lines are the defenders who are in them. So if it's unmanned and also prevented from powerful fire, like, again, if you have artillery overlooking these lines and then people defending inside of them, that presents a huge challenge for any would-be attacker. And there's a balance to be struck here, though, with these lines. And we, oh, I know we said that we wanted to make them as large as possible, right? Extend them as large as possible and make it so that our flank cannot be turned. However, if they are super extensive but not well defended, well, they can be taken out without difficulty. Like we said, they don't really pose any sort of threat if we don't have the people to make them useful. And on the other side, if they are too short, you know, if, we, if we have those lines and they are not out there, even if they're well manned, they can still be turned. You know, those short lines, the ability to still coordinate the army moving around that side while getting the press on the front, that is afforded if you've got short lines. But, like I said, if you have the long ones and not enough people, it doesn't really work anyway. So we want a balance there. We want something that isn't too short, that doesn't allow our enemy to easily flank us, but also isn't so long that we can't actually use them to defend ourselves. Because, again, the, the lines themselves are not useful unless they, they are used, because they only grant a localized defense. And, and in a way, that impairs mobility as well. So if we've got people in the trench, we're defending that area of the trench. We can't take the trench with us if we want to move to another position. We have to stay in that trench in order for it to be a defensive position. So that's kind of the backdraw of these lines that we're talking about, whether it be tunnels or, or another sort of solid obstacle like a trench, is that there's that trade-off. And already the defense is sacrificing mobility by making sure that they're kind of on the spot that needs to be passed, needs to be gone through. Having this impairment mobility, it, it, again, depending on the battle type, depending on how we make it, that also you know, depends on, on how exactly it's going to be useful. Now, at this point, he said something that I absolutely wanted to pick a fight with, if only because as a historian you know, two centuries ahead in the future, two plus centuries ahead in the future, I'm able to look back and kind of say, ha you were wrong about cholera and about other things. And this is the quote that I kind of took issue with, and I'm sure you will as well as fellow students of history. Uh, in the latest wars, we find no trace of them, referring to lines, and doubtful if they will ever reappear, or he's doubtful if they will ever reappear. And it's true. You know, he's talking about something that existed. You know, the, the Romans used this a lot. There have been other uh, times in war where these kind of lines are important. You know, siege works when they were dealing with castles, for instance, before we had artillery and had to rely on trebuchets and sappers and other, like, like really direct means of doing that. And we needed those lines to protect, right? Well, now we've moved into this style of warfare where artillery reigns. And even though infantry is still king on the, on the field, they do need to be mobile. And we need to have ways of moving our, our cavalry around. It's a very dynamic field during Clausewitz's time. And so, yeah, during his time, absolutely, you don't really find a whole lot of evidence of, of these sorts of defensive works, these lines. However, you look forward in the future from when this was written, even 50, 60 years, and you start to see more use of those lines. In the American Civil War, you know, we think about a lot of the more dramatic battles, right? Pickett's Charge or Antietam, or other places where there was a lot of drama. But we don't remember places like Cold Harbor, where there were extensive siege works that were drawn up. 
by both sides and where we saw these principles in heavy use. And then, of course, you look 40 years later, 40, I think 50 years later, and suddenly we have World War I, where the entirety of the war is fought from trenches and in trenches and in the no man's land between trenches. So, yes, at the time of this writing, he was correct. You didn't see a whole lot of trench works, and when you did, they were for very specific reasons. But the doubtful day will reappear, that shows a surprising lack of foresight for somebody who usually has pretty good foresight. So I'd, I just wanted to pick on him a little bit for this, this silly thing that he said <laughs> about trenches. But again, I, before I move on, though, it, it does reflect the fact that the needs of behavior, the needs of, of operation war absolutely change with the tactics and the technology that is available. With the brutality that was able to be wrought by the World War I weaponry, the war that was fought then, the, the, the trench warfare, was fought for a reason. It was fought to protect people from, you know, far more accurate artillery fire, grenades, entrenched machine gun positions. You know, there was a reason that it was used. And then when the technology changed again, and you had things like the Blitzkrieg that were developed, we had these rapid uh, tank movements that just blew through any sort of defensive line, well, we started to need a more fluid form of warfare again. And it's gone back and forth, and it will go back and forth, you know, for the rest of history as it has, you know, previously in history. I mean, we can all hope that we might see a day without war, but pragmatically, I don't know how possible that is. So this story is still an unfolding one. So that's lines. When we're talking about, like, that strong defensive idea, we're talking about making a... a a strong position, being able to move our troops from one place to another without our opponent being able to observe and or fire upon them. That's kind of the point of these lines, in whatever form they take. But the lines have to be formed around a position, which is the second point that we're making in this, in this section. So we're going to build this idea on position, and it starts off with a very simple statement, one that I don't think it takes a whole lot of skill or insight to be able to ascertain. And that is that defense of a country continues only so long as that country is occupied by the defender. Which is kind of a no-duh. You can only defend something if you are there to actually defend it, right? But that's a no-brainer, as they would say. But if we want to maintain possession of a particular position, if, if that is our goal, if that is our aim, well then, we have to make sure that it's unassailable. Because our opponent has some sort of superiority, whether it's numbers or tech, that's the reason that they have the boldness to be coming after us. And so we must maintain uh, possession of a position, and we have to do so against our opponent's superiority, thus the need for it to be unassailable. And, as we talked about in the defensive section, the space also needs to be suited for the size and the needs of that particular army. However, the, the smaller the force, the more unassailable it needs to be, the stronger that position needs to be to really fulfill its purpose. Because then we're working at numeric disadvantages. And anytime we start doing anything with numeric disadvantages, that is the singular most important thing in Clausewitz's theory of war, is numbers. Crush them with numbers. And so if we have a smaller force than our opponent does, that position better be pretty darn good. And, again, it needs to suit the aims of our army. We need to make sure that we have positions for our artillery and or archers and or whatever long-range capability we may have. We need to make sure that our field is suited toward whatever our main attack style is, whether that be fast-moving kind of cav action or more solid infantry-based formations. These things need to be accounted for. 
when we're especially when we're talking about a strong position, even more so than when we're talking about a defensive position. And another big thing that we're talking about when we're dealing with these positions is that it needs to be able to have the vittles that are secure for long periods that without them, like the ability to survive a siege, or that have the ability to make sure that they can survive a siege with outside assistance. Those two things are very important for these positions because, again, if our opponent comes at us and wraps around us and we're making sure that that front is everywhere, but suddenly we don't have a line of retreat anymore. We are where we are. And even if we're in a position where our opponent cannot advance upon us, they can still choke us out in this particular case, right? So for this position to really be unassailable, it needs to be well enforced with supplies in addition with people. So when we're looking to see like the eligibility, how do, again, how do we define a strong position and what kind of advantages and disadvantages do we have? Well, we have to ask ourselves what our opponent can do against our position. And that decides whether or not it is strong. And if our assailant can pass us by, they can pursue whatever enterprises they need to do and just watch us. So even though we're unassailable, if our opponent can still maneuver around us, and accomplish their aims, the strong position doesn't accomplish anything because now they're just waiting for us to come out. They, the objective is over yonder. They don't need to destroy us to achieve their objective. And so we have to place ourselves in a position, much like we had talked about with the defensive position, we have to place ourselves in a position to either threaten their flank or their line of retreat is another thing because if they pass us by and we're in a position to be like, okay, pass is closed now, you can't get out. Now that's great. That kind of anticipates that choice that the enemy can make of going around us. Or the other thing is that we don't have any objectives that they need. We are the objective, our position. And so we don't have to sally forth and defend anything in the countryside, any sort of industrial or agricultural zone. We have only our sweet selves to worry about. In which case, this choice to pass us by isn't a disadvantage for us. But it really is always an advantage for our opponent because anything, anytime they can spare blood and attempt to achieve their objective, that's a huge advantage for them. Our job as the defender is to punish them every step of the way for any objective progress that they are making. And unless we're doing this, unless we're being able to uh, in the, be in the way with our position, make sure that you know it's something that cannot be bypassed or that it threatens a flank or a line of retreat because then it actually serves a purpose rather than just a hidey hole that we go to to preserve a force that is no longer useful. Now, also, secondly, if our opponent chooses not to pass us by, remember that they also don't have to directly attack us either. There's uh, sieges. Sieges are absolutely a, a, um, a way of <laughs> winning a conflict like that. Why fire a single shot when you can wait for your opponent to starve and then capitulate? because they don't want to starve anymore. For the siege to be possible, our opponent has to be able to cut off our line of retreat, right? Make sure that we can't get out of it, and that they have to have a force of sufficient size to cover the area and to be able to deal with any sorties that we send out, any sort of you know counterpunch that we're putting to try to break up the lines or establish a line of retreat or communication. It has to be large enough and technologically advanced enough to be able to not deal with that. So what do we need in order to still have an unassailable position? How do we deal with this, these, uh, these advantages that our opponent might have? Well, the first one is to make sure, make darn sure that our line of retreat 
or and or our lines of communication are secure in some way or another. Position ourselves in such a way that that is not something that will be compromised. Because for a siege to be possible, that needs to be cut off first. Secondly, we want to make sure that the enemy's force isn't strong enough for an investment in the siege. In a lot of ways, we can distract them by doing these sorties. Like I said, these small attacks that go from outside the wall that kind of threaten our opponent's line in various places and keep them guessing. You know, think about the uh, velociraptors in Jurassic Park, how they kept jumping up and testing the electrical cables, looking for a sweet spot, looking for a weak spot that they could actually break through. Well, this is kind of the idea of a sortie too, right? These quick little uh, small actions, these very fast actions that strike out and test for weaknesses, except that our opponent isn't an electrical cable at this point and actually is reacting and, and moving around in other ways. And thirdly, we need to make sure that we can count on relief. We need to make sure that there are other forces out there that know about us and they're coming to help us, or that, again, we have our line of communication and can secure that either through you know, communication with our HQ back there. You know, think about um, the pressure that was being placed upon the traitors when they were you know, sieging at Terra. They all knew that Gilliman and the Ultramarines were on their way. They all knew that the Dark Angels were on their way. There was a time limit on what they could do there, on how long it, it, they needed to take in order to uh, secure their objective. So being able to count on relief really puts pressure on the attacker and makes our position even more unassailable because, you know, we're not just going to be dealing with them versus us, that slow whittling down of our forces. We do have the ability to pull in either somebody who reinforces and kind of joins the battle or, or really just brings fresh troops, fresh faces to the, to the war, to our position. And at least one of these is needed to call the position unassailable, which is to say either you know, we've got our rear secure or our enemy's force is not strong enough for the investment in the siege, or we can count on relief. We need to make sure we at least have one of those things in place. Now, we reduce our peril by having more than one. If we can have two, fantastic. If we can have all three, even better. But one at least is needed. And again, that is making sure that our, our rear is secure, that our enemy's force isn't strong enough, and that's not necessarily in our control, but that definitely influences our position, and that we can count on relief. One of those things is outstanding. And so if we look back at the eligibility of this position, and we're, when we're seeing that you know our opponent, even if they pass us by, is being threatened in some way, if we have achieved the idea of having our unassailable position where if it can be passed by, we are still threatening their line of retreat, or we are still threatening their flank, that is a, a huge part of this. And if we are able to have th this B idea of being able to kind of break the siege, you know, the rear is secure, the enemy's force is, is not strong enough, we can count on relief. If neither of those things is in favor of the attacker, if which is to say that like we aren't threatening their rear or their flank, or we don't have one of those three conditions that kind of uh, make us, make it possible for us to be unassailable, then the mission is complete. We won. Our strong position did its job. They can't pass by us without being threatened. And if they do come at us, we've got means of dealing with it. And our strong position means that they have a unassailable thing to come up against. That's kind of the idea. 
So I know that was kind of convoluted. And again, Clausewitz is convoluted, which is part of the reason I encourage you to read along at home, because you know, I, some of this stuff, I feel like I'm referencing things that I may not have written down in my notes. So I just, I want to make sure that it's clear. This was a very technical section. Lastly, we're going to talk about entrenched camps near fortresses. And again, this is something that we normally don't have to deal with in wargaming, but I thought was really cool information that I wanted to share. And this is something that exists not to protect territory, like a defensive position or a strong position does, but rather troops against attack for whatever reason. It also has the objective of preventing siege to the fort. And if we're talking about that in combination with a strong or defensive position, if we've got an entrenched camp in the field that is far more mobile than what we have with an actual position, then that helps break up the idea of an attack. It gives us more options when dealing with that. You know, another thing that an entrenched camp can be, can be used for is that it is formed near fortresses for smaller bodies of troops that would normally be in danger if they camped in the open field. You know, it is far safer under the guns of a fort, even if you're outside of the walls, than it is out in the middle of nowhere where you can be surrounded or destroyed by a larger force. So fortresses are excellent for making sure that these small bodies of troops can meet up and link up and form larger ones. And in that same mind, an entrenched camp can be used for assembly and organization for troops that are unprepared for enemy combat, whether those troops are disorganized or you, you've taken a lot of damage to a particular unit or you're still try trying to get like noobs together for instance like a bunch of troops that are not ready to march out yet because they still need to be organized or still need to be trained uh entrenched camps are also good for this and there's not a whole lot more to be said on the idea of an entrenched camp uh, like i said they they uh, help with preventing siege to a fort they can be they, they it's, but it's a mutually beneficial relationship because the fort provides protection and cover for them to be able to organize and you know again kind of protect the smaller units and bring everybody together in a central protected area so if we look back over this section on strong positions we can see that they are most effective when they are defending small areas or threatening a line of retreat we know that they are less dangerous the more supplies and relief we have, which is to say our position is less dangerous, the more supplies and re relief that we have guaranteed. And thirdly, this one kind of goes without saying, the more effective that they are, that means the more that they have weakened our opponent's attack. So, a, a brief recap of everything real quick. Defensive positions are ones where we are able to choose our terrain to our advantage and make sure that we've shored it up for all of our weapons and all of our army perks to be able to take a, a good whack at the enemy, but also in a position where we are not completely telling our opponent not to come at us. Because again, with a defensive position, we are trying to provoke battle and it is designed to be a battle type situation. Whereas a strong position is one that has been far more fortified, far more has been tended to in terms of these lines, in terms of selection and uh, building up of that position. And the, the difference there being that we don't want that position to be attacked. And if it is attacked, we, we want our opponent to break themselves upon it rather than have a chance at all. And I hope, again, I know that a lot of this content that we covered in this particular episode may not be directly useful for what we do most of the time. I know that there's a lot of scenarios where these situations might be more mimicked. But in terms of our open battles or our match play games, 
this isn't something that will generally be super important, but I, again, I think there's some lessons to be taken from it, and I thought it was inter interesting information, so I appreciate you all listening. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off.